Hi, this is Jim O'Donnell. Um, I am trying to run the Taos Land Trust Radio Hour here at KNCE True Taos Radio 93.5. My apologies to everyone, but especially to our guest, Ben Goldfarb, who I hope we have on the air now. Do we have you there, Ben? I can hear you. All right. I can actually hear you, too. That's fantastic. (laughs) All right. Hey, Ben, thank you for your patience and for calling back 15 times. I really appreciate that to get us going. So I want to just jump right back in because... Uh, we're a little shorter on time than I wanted us to be. Ben is a, an environmental journalist, an author, a short story writer, and the author of the book Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. The reason that uh, we're talking about beavers at the Taos Land Trust these days is because we have a 20-acre piece of land right in the middle of the town of Taos that has um, a section of the Rio Fernando on it and the wetlands that are associated with that that creek. Just down uh, stream from us is, is Fred Baca Park where some beavers have taken up residence and we are working to create the conditions in Rio Fernando Park and along the Rio Fernando for the beaver to come back in and do some ecological restoration work for, for us. So that's one reason why I wanted to talk to Ben. And Ben, I just wanted to start off with, why did you write a book about beavers? Sure, yeah. Uh, and first, I'd, I'd say thanks for having me. And, and it's also so exciting to hear that you guys are incorporating beavers in, in your restoration work. And you know, that's, you're really at the, at the cutting edge of ecological restoration, I, I think. It's just so fantastic to learn about more projects that are, are utilizing these animals in this, in this really productive way. Now, my own conversion to kind of the beaver cult came a few years ago. I was, I was living in, uh, in Washington State and working for um, High Country News, a great uh, environmental magazine that covers the American West. And uh, I, I met a beaver biologist there, this guy named Kent Woodruff, who was the director of the, the Metow Beaver Project, which is basically this project that live traps nuisance beavers, so beavers that are cutting down people's cottonwoods or flooding or clogging up road culverts and flooding roads or what have you, they live trap those problem animals and relocate them to, to public lands um, where, where beavers can you know, build their dams, create some ponds, store some water, and do some ecological and hydrological good without threatening private, private property. And you know, just, just going to some of the sites that Kent and his Metow Valley team had relocated beavers was just so inspiring to me. You know, it was, it's, uh, it was really remarkable how profoundly beavers had transformed these sites and how much life had shown up to, to take advantage of the ponds and wetlands that beavers had created. So it was really going out there. I mean, certainly, you know, like anybody who spent some time in the outdoors, I'd, I'd had beaver encounters before, but it was going out there with this really gifted interpreter of the landscape, this biologist, Ken Woodruff. Uh, he was really the one who sort of opened my eyes to the the kind of the incredible life supporting power of this of this semi aquatic rodent. So, obviously, the the classic beaver behavior, right, is they is they they build dams and they create these ponds. And the, the reason they do that is they're basically trying to uh, you know create shelter for themselves, right? Beavers are sort of this clumsy animal on land uh, and very graceful in the water. And when they're on land, you know, they're they're prey for for cougars and black bears and, and wolves and coyotes and, you know, it's about anything that would eat a big, fat, juicy rodent. Um, but, you know, in, in water, they're, they're uh, comparatively much safer. Um, so that's sort of the reason for the, the dam building behavior. And, you know, the, the effects of it are, are really profound. I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, here in North America, because we trapped out our beavers 
centuries ago, um, and, and you know, and only uh, let them return in the last few decades, really, in many places. You know, we don't really realize how significant beavers are as these as these ecological architects. Uh, but you know, when you when you read accounts from Lewis and Clark, say, you know, they're going up the up the Missouri River and they're and they're seeing beaver dams in every single tributary of the Missouri as far as the eye can see to the mountains. You know, and there I mean there are amazing accounts of explorers crossing the state of Indiana, you know, which today is just cornfields and, and strip malls. Uh no offense to the Indianans listening to this. Uh and you know and, and not and not finding a dry place to camp for a hundred miles because of because beavers had just so profoundly dammed and ponded everything. Uh, so, you know, that of that ability to, st- to sort of store and spread water across the landscape is hugely significant. You know, I mean, by some estimates, there were as many as 250 million beaver ponds uh, in North America before the before the arrival of trappers. Uh, so, you know, today we sort of think of them right as this sort of this niche thing that you see every once in a while on a stream. But once upon a time, you know, this, this country was just in every single stream, river, lake, pond, um, you know, supported these animals. I think that anyone who, um, who spends a lot of time out on the landscape, uh, hiking and exploring around like, like I do, and I think you do too, you, you, when you start looking at old maps of certain areas, um, you, hmm. you see the, indications of, of springs everywhere. There's the little little symbols for springs or or the names of springs all over the the maps and, and then you go there to to maybe find water or just to see what might be there and it's it's just a dried up section of rocks. And it, it always struck me as as you know as somebody who loves old maps and loves taking them out and exploring the land with them that the the number of springs and seeps and wetlands that used to exist even just you know, over the past hundred years, it was profoundly different yeah. than it is now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I think that that is in in large measure due to the due to the elimination of beavers. You know, there's a, a really great paper by a hydrologist named Suzanne Foudy, and she's up in Oregon, but she's done a lot of work in in southwestern ecosystems. Uh, and you know, and she and she's basically showing that you know so many of the of the arroyos, you know, these, these kind of seasonal washes that, that today hold water, you know, every, every once in a while after a storm, um, were actually perennial. Uh, and they were perennial in large part because, because of beavers, you know, and we, we I mean, in, my, in, the, in the course of my, my reporting for the book, you know, I just came across countless examples of places where, you know, there was kind of a, a thin trickle of seasonal water and, you know, beavers showed up, they built their dam, they basically, slowed that water down, they kept it on the landscape longer, and they turned this little pathetic seasonal trickle into a into a, a more robust perennial stream. Uh, and again, there I mean there are just so many examples of that, um, you know, some of which are, are cited in the book. And uh, you know, I just I just think that you're absolutely right that that, you know, once this was a much a much wetter landscape, uh, and a big part of that was just beavers slowing down and storing water and preventing it from, you know, from running off immediately. And, I, you know, I think that lots of people feel like, well, you know, I mean, beavers are just storing that water in their, in their dams and ponds and, and it's, or in their, in their ponds rather. And it's, it's not really, you know, available to us um, because it's backed up in a, in a beaver pond, but I mean, obviously the dams are semi-permeable, right? So they're still, I mean, just because you have a, de- a beaver dam on a stream doesn't mean that the, you know, all of the stream is in the pond. I mean, obviously lots of water is still, 
getting out through the dam and uh, and just keeping that stream wet for so much longer into the hot season. So I think you're absolutely right that, that this is much a, a, a once a much wetter, lusher place. This is Jim O'Donnell. I'm from the Talos Land Trust, and we're speaking with Ben Goldfarb, the author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter on KNCE True Taos Radio, 93.5 FM. Ben, how, how did we get where we are now? Um, in your book and in your articles, you have, um, you've laid out the fact that North America, prior to the arrival of Euro-Americans, was a profoundly different ecosystem, and, a, and part of that was because it was so wet. So just yeah. maybe just give us a little bit of the history of how we got where we are today. Sure. So in the early 1600s, uh, trappers first arrived in, in North America. European, they were really traders at that point, more than, more than trappers, trading for beaver pelts with, with Native Americans. You know, beavers, beaver fur made great hats. That was kind of the primary use for, for beaver pelts. Um, the, you know, the, the, the under fur, beavers have kind of two layers of fur, and the under fur just is, is sort of selted up into this really good hat-making material. Um, you know, so over the course of, of really 250 years or so, trappers just gradually spread west, um, trading for and, and trapping beavers out of every single drainage they encountered. Uh, you know, at the, at the at the at the time of European arrival, there were as many as 400 million beavers in North America. Uh, by the year 1900, there were 100,000, most of them in Canada. Uh, so, it kind of gives you a, a sense of the, the how drastically beavers were eliminated from uh, from this this country. And you know, obviously, beavers. I mean, in New Mexico, you know, beavers are a kind of integral part of the state's history. Uh, you know, it's really it was really the promise of beavers in the in the mountains that you know that lured white people across uh, you know over the over the Santa Fe Trail. Um, you know, many of the first the first uh, white folks to arrive in New Mexico were were uh, fur trappers. And actually, one of the one of the first conservation laws ever passed in North America was passed in New Mexico to sort of protect beavers from from trapping in, in uh, 1838. Um, so you know, beavers are sort of integral to, uh, to, to your own state's history as well, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, reading the historical accounts of, especially when the Spanish first arrived here, but also the, um, the early uh, French trappers and, and, and Americans, the sense that you get were, you know, these high grasses and a much wetter landscape in general. And so, you know, it's interesting how our cultural perception of the Southwest, particularly New Mexico, is influenced by the idea that it's a desert. And so many people mm. from other states constantly talk about, oh, what's it like to live in the desert? And yet, historically, we weren't a desert. We weren't as dry as we are now, landscape-wise. And so we've created right. a, a new reality on the landscape for New Mexico that now has become kind of the baseline for what we think New Mexico to be. Yeah, I think, I think that's, I think that's completely true. You know, and, and what, I mean, your, your point about the, the, the high grasses, you know, these lush meadows, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of a classic beaver contribution to the landscape, right? I mean, when you, you know, when you have a, a complex of beaver dams and ponds, you know, there's, there's, so there's all, all there's all the visible, surface water that you can see in the ponds, but then of course the weight of those ponds is, is 
forcing water into the ground, recharging aquifers, raising the groundwater table. You know, I mean, and there, and there are just so many examples of beavers arriving in a place and, and raising water tables and sort of sub-irrigating these really lush meadows and, you know, and creating the conditions where, where riparian trees like aspen and cottonwood and willow can really thrive. So I think there's, I think there's no question that the Southwest and, and New Mexico in particular was a, a much wetter, lusher, more verdant place. And a big part of that would, would, would have been beavers forcing water into the ground and raising water tables and sub-irrigating vegetation. So I think you're, I think you're absolutely correct about that. And and that brings up um, this idea, the concept of the sh- shifting baseline syndrome. I guess that's kind of what we're really yeah. talking about here. And um, dive into that a little bit. Sure. So the the notion of the shifting baseline syndrome is is that over time, every subsequent generation kind of accepts environmental degradation as the new normal. So it's really coined by fisheries biologists, actually, you know, and, and basically that's like, you know, if, if, if I today, if I went out and I, I live in, I live in Washington. So if, if I went out and I caught, you know, I, I caught a, a 10 pound salmon, I would think that was really great. You know, if a fisherman here had caught, had caught a 20 pound salmon, 10 years ago, he would think that was really great. You know, but 100 years ago, guys were catching, you know, 100-pound king salmon, right? And, and, of course, those fish are long gone. And today, I'm just, you know, I'm just happy to catch my, my little 10-pounder. So that's, that's sort of the idea of shifting baseline syndrome, that over time, the, you know, environmental conditions deteriorate, and each generation doesn't realize it because we're all sort of accustomed to the, the degraded normal. Uh, if that if that makes sense, you know our, our standards slip each each year, right. um, and I think that I think that's exactly what happened in in regards to beaver. You know, is that is that is that because the trappers arrived and wiped out millions and millions of beavers. You know, it wasn't really for another several decades that you know that the, that the first naturalist showed up and you know and began making detailed observations about, you know, about what these landscapes looked like. You know, I mean, some of the, some of the trappers did keep journals, but most of them, you know, were not the most literary guys. And, you know, we don't really have too many records about what, what this continent looked like and how it functioned before the arrival of trappers. So, you know, I think that we have, we have the shifting baseline syndrome has kind of applied to this, this dry condition that we have where we don't really realize how, how wet and lush it was because we don't have, you know, many, many great records about, you know, about what, what these ecosystems look like, you know, and the same, and the same process actually applies to scientists. It's not just, you know, it's not just lay people who sort of succumb to this, you know, it's, I mean, most of our, most of our, our models about how, you know, how streams work in North America were developed in kind of this post beaver era, you know, Luna Leopold, who's kind of the father of, of stream science, and is actually the son of, of Aldo Leopold, you know, Luna Leopold, did all of these fantastic stream studies, but, you know, he did them in streams that lacked beavers. So for all of, all of his great contributions to, to sort of this, the study of stream form and function, you know, he had this kind of big beaver blind spot that wasn't really his fault. It was just because he was studying this landscape that had lost one of its most important architects. I had recently read an article that spoke to just that issue uh, in regards to the oceans and whales was that uh, when when ocean science, oceanography really got going, it was at a time when whales had been decimated throughout the world and their impact on the ocean ecosystem wasn't 
wasn't uh, taken into account. So when we think of what the ocean ecosystem is, just like when we think of of what a, a riparian ecosystem is, uh, it was done. That idea is without the the influence of the uh, the whales, or in this in the case of what we're speaking of, the beavers. And so it really gives us a distorted baseline to base both our science and our general perception of these ecosystems. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I mean, one thing that I think a lot about is, is how, you know, how, how abundant were, were certain other species because of beavers, right? I mean, right. beavers, obviously, we know that they create incredible habitat for waterfowl is an obvious one, right? I mean, what, what you know, what, I mean, obviously, most, so many ducks and, and geese and swans depend on water features and, and beaver ponds. Uh, obviously, fish are huge beaver beneficiaries. Amphibians, moose, you know, you, you name it. It's really, in, in many places, it's harder to name a species that doesn't rely on beavers for habitat than one that, uh, that does. Um, you know, so, so it's like, I mean, how, how you wonder how abundant were, let's say, you know, trumpeter swans, for example, uh, you know, a species that loves to nest on, on beaver ponds. Uh, or on beaver lodges, rather, which provide these great nesting platforms within ponds where, where swans and other waterfowl can, can raise their young safe from predators. You know, I mean, trumpeter swans are you know, a species that drastically declined, you know, in the, in the 18 and 1900s, some of that due to hunting pressure, but some of that because, you know, because we had basically eliminated the animal that creates the great swan habitat, right? So, so, so I, I think that when you think about the decline of beavers and what it meant for the landscape. I mean, you're not ta- you're not only talking about the decline of, of this rodent itself. You're also talking about the potential unnoticed collapse of all of these species that depend on this this other keystone species for their habitat. You know, I think that's I think that's something that we're just coming to wrap our heads around is the, the ways in which the elimination of beaver was this, this catastrophic form of habitat loss for all of these birds and amphibians and fish. That's just fascinating. Uh, this is Jim O'Donnell of the Talus Land Trust, and I'm here with Ben Goldfarb, the author of Eager, Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. There's going to be a River and Lands Cleanup Day, July 14th. The Rocky Mountain Youth Corps and Amigos Bravos Local and federal agencies are putting together a river and lands cleanup day for Saturday, July 14th. Why? There are multiple illegal dump sites around Taos County. These uh, impact our rivers, and so we want to bring out the community and help to clean up both the riparian river areas and our community. So meet in Taos at St. James or at the Cuesta Visitor Center at 8 a.m. Saturday, July 14th. This is Jim O'Donnell uh, of the Taos Land Trust, and I'm here with Ben Goldfarb, the author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Ben, um, we were talking about the influence of beavers on the landscape. Talk a little bit about the similarities between beavers and farmers. Sure. Well, you know, the obvious one is that, is that both are utterly dependent on water. Right. I mean, of course, beavers beavers require water for their own their own habitat, and and obviously farmers and ranchers are utterly water dependent. You know, I think that's I think that there's a potential for a really close relationship there. You know, when I when I did my reporting, I, I traveled around and talked to lots of ranchers, especially in uh, you know in some pretty dry places like Northeast Nevada. Um, you know, and, and found lots of guys who 
had really come to appreciate the role of beavers in keeping water on the landscape. You know, one exa- one example is, is this guy named John Griggs, who's a, a rancher in, in uh, Elko County, Nevada. And, uh, you know, his experience was basically that, uh, you know, beavers beavers turned up. He, you know, his, his first inclination was to kill them. You know, lots of people in the agricultural community don't like beavers because, you know, they clog irrigation ditches is one very, very, one very common complaint. So John, you know, wanted to kill his beavers, but uh, he decided to let them stay and see what happened. And, you know, 10 years later, he had this spectacular cattail marsh that was creating incredible forage for his cattle and also providing this water source that, that his, his livestock had used during times of drought. So, you know, when drought hit Elko County in 2012, you know, many of his neighbors actually had to pull their, their cows from the range or truck water to their cattle at great expense. And because John had this fantastic beaver-created water feature, you know, he was basically able to, to weather the drought much more successfully than many of his neighbors. Uh, and, you know, and that experience proved really you know, formative or enlightening for, for many folks in, in Elko. And now, you know, in Northeast Nevada, which is, a, you know, a pretty conservative place, there's this, there's this kind of interesting current of, of beaver love and, and embracing, um, you know, at a spot where you might not expect it. So, you know, there's the potential for a really great relationship between beavers and the agricultural community. But, you know, that, that doesn't always... Uh, <laughs> I think the John story is probably more... Uh, exception and rule so far. Right. We've heard a lot of discussion from uh, our friends who are farmers of, uh, of about the beavers and some some concern and some worry. Uh, one of it, mm-hmm. one of those worries, kind of touches back on something you mentioned earlier about uh, beavers stealing the water, and and yet one of the things that we've noticed at the Rio Fernando Park is that because there's this large beaver dam just downstream of us in this backup of water, um, we have a very, even though we don't have beaver on the land, we have a very high water table in the riparian area and in the marsh. And because the ground is soaked back from that beaver pond and we're reaping the benefits on our land from what is downstream. Right. Com- completely. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's another very common dynamic. You know, there, I mean, one, one rancher I spoke to basically said that that beavers had increased his his forage production tenfold, basically wow. by doing exactly that, by backing water up, by sub irrigating these meadows, and you know by creating really lush pasture where there was just sort of you know dry uh, sagebrush. Um, so you know I, I think that's I think that's completely true. And uh, you know again, I mean, as I said earlier. You know, I, I, there's no question that beavers can, you know, temporarily reduce the amount of water that's getting downstream. But, of course, these dams are semi-permeable, right? There's water getting through the dams. You know, so the notion that they're stealing the water and that it's, it's therefore permanently lost to other users, you know, and that's just, there's a lot of research that refutes that uh, and basically shows that, you know, again, what beavers are doing is they're, they're basically – you know, they're sort of flattening out flows, right? I mean, what you know, what you usually get is you get these huge flow peaks in the spring with melt, you know, and then by fall, you know, you're you're basically dry. And beavers are just are just taking it, are just taking that super, you know, mountainous hydrograph and flattening it out, right? They're slowing water down in the spring when it's super abundant, and then they're releasing it gradually through the summer and fall when it's it's most valuable. Um, you know, so so they're not really stealing water; they're actually, you know, making it more available 
during the mo- during the most the most important parts of the of the year. So even for drow- downstream users, there's a benefit to having a beaver upstream. It sounds and beyond just. I'm just running this through in my mind as we're talking, just there's potentially, you know, bringing up the water table, releasing the the water uh, more slowly. So potentially dealing with flood threats, uh, reducing flood threats, things like that. But also if you're storing that water and you're capturing things from upstream, you you're you're potentially reducing pollution, right? Yeah, that's that's a that's a, a huge one, too. I mean, obviously, beavers are. You know, so when they're when they're dams slow down water, uh, lots of lots of sediment and whatever whatever load the water is carrying settles out. Uh, and you know, it's been it's been shown that those these sorts of settling ponds that beavers create are just fantastic pollution removal systems. They're they're settling out the nitrates and the phosphorus and you know and the other sort of forms of runoff that uh, you know that impair water quality. So that's a, that's another another fantastic beaver function, and just to you know just to return to the sort of the the whole perennial stream question. I mean, just to re, and to return to this guy John Griggs in in Northeast Nevada. So his the name of his creek was Susie Creek. That was that was sort of his his water source. And you know what what researchers found is that after the so so I mean this creek was basically going dry downstream um, where it approached its, its confluence with the Humboldt River. And what researchers found is that after beavers turned up. The creek stayed dry, or stayed wet, rather, for three additional miles. So beavers were adding three miles of wetted stream length to the to this creek. And wow. if they were, you know, if they were stealing, if they were stealing water, of course, that that wouldn't happen. Instead, again, what they're doing is just making it more available later in the season. And that so just strikes me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Really critical. Yeah, well, it just strikes me, especially for um, for e- farmers who irrigate, uh, like, you know, we have all our acequias here in northern New Mexico. And one of the issues right. we face this summer with this drought is that when water is turned turned out uh, into the acequias, it's it's been taking a long time to soak the ground enough to where the acequias could then carry the water to the fields. And in some cases, mm. there hasn't even been enough water to to soak the ground to the point where the acequias can can then transport water across the land. And so what you're saying about the, the Susie River having water an extra three miles downstream being wet, it seems to me that for acequia users and for the acequia systems, beavers could also be a gigantic benefit because you, you would have an already saturated chunk of land that would then make the water more efficient the water use more efficient yeah i think i think there, i think there's you know i think there's certainly the potential for that i think the one thing to, to remember is that you know that there's still there's still there's still so much we don't know about about this stuff right is we've been studying beavers for a long time in some ways but you know in other ways kind of the the study of beavers and, and their impact on hydrology you know is, is really in its infancy you know how much i mean how much water is being stored underground is, is kind of a question that we're just beginning to wrap our heads around. You know, how much of that water makes its way downstream and how far does it get? Um, you know, how much are our downstream flows really being impacted? Um, it's something that we're just, again, you know, studying now. Um, and how much, you know, how much of a difference beavers can make in, in sort of helping us adapt to climate change is another, another giant question, right? I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're losing uh, our snowpack, our ability to 
you know, irrigate um, crops with, you know, with, with melt uh, is going away as, you know, more precipitation falls as rain rather than snow. You know, we don't really have this great sort of time-released uh, snow melt system so much anymore in many parts of the, of the, the arid west. And uh, any, any animal that can kind of keep some of that water on the landscape becomes even more important. So, you know, to what extent can beavers help us adapt to some of the, the climate-related changes we're experiencing is another big question. So, you know, I don't want to pretend that, that beavers are some kind of, you know, some kind of water panacea, right? They're going to solve all of our, all of our problems at once. We don't, you know, we don't really know how large a contribution they can, they're capable of making. But, you know, at this point, we certainly know enough to say this is an incredibly valuable animal. It's keeping water in the landscape. And, you know, if you, if you can learn to coexist with it, it can really help you out. Right, right. Yeah, I was, we've been discussing a little bit about... Uh, we've been discussing with Councillor Town Councillor Fritz Hahn uh, about how the the snowmelt is actually happening earlier now, and then it's and yeah. it's it's happening faster. And so our irrigation timeline in the valley is still on the old schedule. And so right. so for for example, what little snowpack we had this year when it melted off. I think a lot of farmers actually missed it because the acacias weren't ready. And so we've got this we've got to readjust to that system. And I was really seeing, you know, what you're, what you're talking about with the, um, uh, with the beavers and the ability to store water is that it can help, it can help balance that type of system and make it more resilient so that our, our, our water, so we can adjust to those climate changes that are happening. Yeah. I think, I think that's, I think that is, that is potentially absolutely true. You know, with the, with the caveat that you know, again, we, there's a lot about this that we that we don't know. Right. I, mean, I think I think that the kind of the critical thing is, is just is just to get these animals back in the system, right? I mean, you know, one of the things that was striking to me as I traveled around the West talking to, to beaver managers in different places is how much you know, sort of the the prevalence of beavers on the landscape and and the you know the regulatory environment that allows them to flourish just differs from from place to place. You know, and, and I think that I think that New Mexico, and I'm you know I'm, I'm, I love New Mexico, and I've spent I've spent a, a whole lot of time there. So I'm not trying to point fingers at your wonderful <laughs> state, um, you know. But I do think I, that New I Mexico think reality. Has, we need reality, so go for it. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll I'll try I'll try to do this, in, you know, in a, in a polite, gentle way. You know, I think I I do think that that New Mexico, you know, it's a, it's a place that could stand to be much more beaver conscious and beaver encouraging. You know, I think that one. I mean, one of the things that that really holds beavers back in a lot of places is is the way that grazing is managed you know i, I mean cows cows in cows in the stream um you know sort of inevitably end up eating the the willow aspen cottonwood other riparian vegetation that beavers need um and if you don't you know if you if you basically you know let cows hang out in 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 the creek bed you know, as as many places uh, as many places do, um, you know, it's basically impossible for the for beaver forage to regrow and for beavers to return. So there's been a lot of research about beavers in in New Mexico on on public lands, which are grazed, you know, pretty pretty intensively. And you know, and beaver and New Mexico has a much lower beaver density than than many many western states. And I think that you know that in large part because of the way that grazing is managed. You know, just to return to that this you know the, the Nevada story. I mean. That was a place where, you know, those streams were totally hammered by by grazing. You know, and the guys just turned their turned their cows out and and uh, you know let them let them go nuts all, all year long. And it wasn't until they started managing grazers in a more 
intensive way. Um, they, they fenced off some riparian areas. You know, they just, I mean, in some, in some cases, they just, they just kind of rotated their cows through riparian pastures more rapidly. Um, so the vegetation didn't get, didn't get grazed quite as intensively. You know, and it was, it was that sort of more uh, active grazing management that allowed riparian willow to regrow and allowed the beavers to, to return there and, you know, and produced all of those spectacular water sources for that rancher. You know, so hmm. I think that, um, you know, I think, I think that, that land management is a really critical piece of beaver management. And obviously, you know, I mean, far be it for me, you know, a guy, a guy up in Washington to tell, you know, New Mexico farmers and ranchers how to, how to manage their livestock. That's, that's certainly not, not my role. But, you know, of course, I, I, I do think that it's, it's critical that we, you know, that we just get the land management right, that we create conditions in which, in which beavers can recover um, and provide all of these great benefits to us. And, you know, and in many cases, that's going to mean managing grazing in a more active way. Ben, just in the last uh, minute that we've got, um, tell us a little bit about your time here in Taos. Yeah, my time, my time was my time in Taos was really wonderful. So I spent I spent a, a month there last year. Uh, I was a, a writing resident with the uh, the, the Leopold Writing Program. Uh, so I, I hung out in uh, in Aldo Leopold's former uh, Forest Service cabin in uh, in, in Trace Piedras, and it was you know it was it was really a wonderful experience. I'd certainly spent a lot of time in, in New Mexico previously, but this is the kind of the longest block of time, and you know got to do a lot of hiking and fishing, and you know and I was I mean I was struck by sort of what I what I just said, you know, there are definitely places, you know, in the, in the, the I mean, so one of the places I went while I was there was, was the, the Santa Fe National Forest up in the, the Jemez Mountains. And, and um, you know, there are some, the Forest Service is doing some beaver restoration programs there. And they've, you know, they've set up some, some exclosures that basically keep not only domestic cattle, but also elk and deer from, from grazing and browsing in these streams. And it's just so striking how, how remarkably, um, vegetation has recovered in the places that were that were, where grazing was excluded, and how quickly beavers return to those places. You know, you don't you don't actually need to uh, you know exclude the grazers for very long to get beavers back in those in those systems. I was really impressed by that. So you know, there's still plenty of hope for beavers. We just need to be a little bit more active in our management. I think. Right. Hey Ben, thank you so much. We are out of time, and um, I appreciate you being patient with me to get this show rolling. Um, and to take the time to talk. Uh, We've been speaking with Ben Goldfarb. Check out his new book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. I ordered a copy yesterday. Check it out. Ben, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate uh, you being here. Thanks for having me, Jim. That was was really fun. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. This has been Jim O'Donnell of the Taos Land Trust talking with Ben Goldfarb. Thank you very much for tuning in.